Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Our guest today is Dave Richeson, author of Tales of Impossibility. This book is a fascinating story of the 2,000-year quest to solve four of the most perplexing problems confronting the great Greek geometers, and the eventual conclusion that all four of these problems could not be solved under the conditions laid out millennia ago. But it's also an engaging tale of some of the greatest mathematicians— and some not-so-well-known ones, who met the challenge and moved mathematics forward in ways that the Greek geometers could never have envisioned. Even if you never read a single proof through to its conclusion, you'll enjoy the many entertaining side trips into a geometry far beyond what you learned in high school. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jim. It's my pleasure. Dave, what motivated you to write this book? I guess it goes back to uh, about nine years ago exactly. It was late fall of 2010. Um, I had uh, recently finished uh, a book called Euler's Gem. Uh, I was on sabbatical. I was looking for a new project. Um, And uh, my first instinct was, uh, like Euler's Gem, to pick some uh, interesting bit of the history of math and follow it for, uh, you know, from the beginning to the very end. Um, I was particularly interested at that time in Euclid's elements and was thinking about um, how Euclid's elements played out over the centuries. Um, and eventually I landed on these particular four problems, these uh, problems of antiquity, uh, which were so famous for so long. And eventually, 2,000 years after they were first posed, were shown to be impossible. And so uh, I embarked on this uh this long research project to study these these fascinating problems. Well, I'll tell you, if it takes you eight years to write a book, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> what are the four great problems of antiquity that you mentioned earlier? Um, so uh, the reader, the listener should uh, transport him or herself back to high school geometry and remember um, the compass and straight edge problems. So these were things like, using only a compass and straight edge, uh, draw a perpendicular bisector to a line segment or draw a line parallel to a given line through a point, uh, something like that. So these four problems are similar to those. They are easy to state and the intent is that they be solved only with a compass and a straight edge, no other drawing tools, no other um, tricks or curves or anything like that. Um, So there are four of them. Uh, We can talk about them more as we get uh, deeper into the podcast, but um, briefly, um, one of them is called trisecting the angle. Um, So in high school, you might remember the technique of bisecting an angle, so splitting an angle into two equal sub-angles, and that is a very straightforward um, construction for students, um, but splitting it into three equal parts uh, was a task that the Greeks could not figure out how to do for for a general angle. 
another one is constructing regular polygons. So some of these are possible. Uh, we can construct an equilateral triangle. We can construct a square. Uh, we can construct a bunch of other ones. But there were certain regular polygons that the Greeks were unable to, to construct. So, for example, uh, the regular seven-sided polygon or the regular nine-sided polygon. Um, and so the, the problem was to figure out whether you can construct all of them, all the regular polygons. Uh, the next one is kind of a weird-sounding one. It's called doubling the cube. So here you imagine that you have a line segment, and it is the side of a cube, and you want to construct another line segment that is the side of a cube with twice the volume. So we're not actually constructing the cube because these are planar problems. It's about constructing the side length of these, of these objects. Um, it turns out they were unable to solve this. Uh, and the third, the fourth one is probably the most famous of all of these problems, and it is the problem of squaring the circle. Um, squaring the circle today is uh, people use that expression to represent the impossible. Um, so this problem says that if you have a circle and you have only a compass and straight edge, can you construct a square that has the same area as the circle? Um, and they were unable to do this. Um, this has a partner problem, which is equivalent to it, which is the problem of rectifying a circle. So here uh, you start off with a circle and a compass and straight edge, and you want to draw a line segment that has the same length as the circumference of the circle. So if you can solve that problem, you can solve the problem of squaring the circle and vice versa. And so these are uh, straightforward problems in terms of the task that is asked of you, uh, but they all turned out to be impossible. Well, what exactly does it mean for something to be mathematically impossible? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, we use um, the term impossible in our everyday lives, um, but not exactly in the way that we mean uh, when, we, when we say mathematically impossible. So in everyday life, um, if something is highly improbable, then, then we might say it's impossible. So for example, if we handed a five-year-old a uh, mixed-up Rubik's Cube, um, that five-year-old would, would never be able to solve this uh, solve the Rubik's cube without any, uh, coaching. Uh, so we could say that that's impossible, although it is not literally impossible. Uh, winning some mega jackpot, uh, seems impossible. Um, there are other things that are, um, from a practical standpoint, impossible. So, uh, you know, writing out the digits of pi, uh, to, you know, 300 billion places, you know, that would be physically impossible. Uh, practically impossible, I should say. Um, there are things that are physically impossible, such as uh, creating a perpetual motion machine. Um, this is something that were they to exist, it would contradict you know, our understanding of physics, uh, the conservation of energy, and so forth. Um, and there, but on the other hand, um, uh, some of these things that were thought impossible for a long time uh, proved to be possible. So uh, some examples I like are running the four-minute mile or human flight, or I just saw on the news the other day uh, running a two-hour marathon, a sub-two-hour marathon. Um, these are things that probably seemed impossible uh, but were possible. Um, but if we're talking about things that are mathematically impossible, here we are talking about uh, – using the power of mathematics to uh, investigate mathematical questions and using mathematics to show that under no circumstances are these possible. It's not a matter of 
if I had enough time or if I was clever enough or if we had enough people or if I had a smart enough computer. Um, so there's a long history of uh, mathematical impossibility problems. Uh, one fun example is uh, this uh, old game. It was like the 19th century version of the Rubik's Cube. Um, these are still for sale in gift shops. Uh, these are the 15 puzzles where you uh, have this grid of tiles with the numbers 1 through 15, and you can slide them uh, left, right, up, and down, and you need to get them in numerical order. Uh, well, this uh, famous puzzle master, Sam Lloyd, sold them where uh, the numbers were in numerical order, except the 14 and the 15 were switched in order. Um, and he offered a prize to anyone who could solve his version of the 15 puzzle. Uh, it was actually uh, a secret that he knew that it was impossible. It was mathematically impossible. You could use math to show that there was no way, no matter how long you played with this puzzle, unless you took it apart, uh, to put it to put the numbers in order. Um, there are other famous mathematical uh, impossibilities. Um, so things like uh, Euler's Bridges of Königsberg problems. So this was a famous example in the city of Königsberg where they had seven bridges that uh, spanned a river and it crossed uh, over an island and so forth. And the question was, is it possible to take a tour of this city and cross each bridge one and only one time. Um, and so uh, Leonard Euler uh, eventually proved that this was mathematically impossible. It was not, there was no way uh, to cross these, these bridges. Um, there are lots of other examples. Um, you know, one, one further example would be uh, arrows and possibility theorem. And so this is uh, a fascinating theory, theorem about voting theory that says, you know, if we want a voting system to satisfy certain reasonable uh, criteria of what we think a fair voting system would, traits that a fair voting system would have, that it turns out it's impossible to find a voting system that satisfies all of these things. Um, so there's a, a bunch of fascinating impossibility theorems in mathematics. I'm an old guy, and I remember the 15 puzzle, and I remember trying to do it, what they said was impossible. So yeah. <laughs> and I think many of, many of the older listeners will uh, relate to that. Um, early in your book, you discussed something called mathematical cranks. What are mathematical cranks? Who are they, and why do you think they persist to this day? Um, well, I would say uh, there are people that we refer to as mathematical cranks, but they're uh, part of a more general group of people who uh, don't want to accept uh, some sort of things that are well established. So um, these would be thing, you know, examples would be people who believe that they could invent a perpetual motion machine, um, Holocaust deniers, um, anti-vaccinators, uh, flat earthers, uh, you know, other conspiracy, conspiracy theorists and so forth. Um, so when we call people a mathematical crank, they are particularly interested in mathematics and they think that they have uh, some secret knowledge that the rest of the mathematical community doesn't have. Um, and often when you're talking about mathematical cranks, they circle around these very problems. Um, so some of them are called circle squarers or trisectors. Um, and so forth. And they've been around for many, many years. Um, it's hard to know what motivates them. Um, you know, perhaps, um, you know, perhaps some of them really do think, I mean, I, presumably they all think they have solved these problems. Um, uh, 
maybe they, you know, if, if you show someone that they're wrong, you know, the typical person will recognize that they are wrong, but there's something about uh, these mathematical cranks that do not want to accept that and, and think that they have the corner on knowledge that, um, that mathematicians do not have. Um, and there are many, many examples of these. And as I said, it goes back many years. Um, Augustus de Morgan is a famous mathematician from the 19th century, um, and he collected many examples of mathematical cranks. Uh, he had a Greek name, uh, Morbus Cyclometricus, which is the circle squaring disease. Uh, and he, he, he wrote about this in a book called The Budget of Paradoxes. Uh, more recently, uh, there's a mathematician named Woody Dudley, who uh, is a very humorous uh, writer and has written uh, books about circle squares and trisectors and so forth. Um, it got so bad, this issue of people thinking they've solved these problems, that uh, in the 18th century, uh, the French Academy of Sciences uh, decided that they were no longer going to accept any solutions uh, to these problems and also apparently no uh, perpetual motion uh, patents as well. Uh, so, so this, uh, you know, this, this group of people have been around for, for many, many years. Uh, and if you talk to professional mathematicians, uh, everyone has a story about a letter that they received in the, in the mail or an email that they've received from uh, one of these mathematical cranks. Um, you mentioned earlier that the geometric constructions that the Greeks uh, performed used straight edge and compass how did these arise? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, on one level, I would say um, that uh, you know these these really are the most basic ways of doing geometry. Even if you go back to drawing in the sand, if you have uh, a stick and a rope, you can uh, use it to to mark out a straight line, or you can use it to to draw a circle. Um, so, in a sense, they're very natural uh, ways of doing geometry. Um, however, uh, the Greeks were really interested in creating a theoretical body of mathematics and proving theorems, solving problems, and proving that their problems um, really did what they said they did. Um, and sort of the, the mathematical Bible from that era um, is Euclid's Elements. So we're talking about uh, 300 BC or so. And uh, he Euclid starts off with these five postulates. And from these five postulates, proves all of the theorems in, uh, in his book. And if you read these postulates, um, the first three of these postulates are basically the compass and straight edge postulates that you can draw a line segment, that you can extend a line segment into a straight line, uh, and that you can draw a circle, uh, with any center and any radius. Um, and so, uh, these are both the most simple, um, you know, geometric drawing devices. Um, they produce the line and the circle, which are the most simple geometric objects. But also, um, they uh, come out of Euclid's elements and this um, uh, this theoretical framework that he has made. And so, in a way, this seemed like the right way to do geometry um, at the time was was using lines and circles. Um, uh, I should say that there is this sort of dichotomy, which is a little bit blurry between the practical and the theoretical. Um, on the one hand, uh, on the practical side of things, uh, you want to um, use a compass and straight edge to draw something. So maybe you're a craftsman or something like that. Uh, on the other hand, there's the theory. And here we're talking about, you know, uh, geometric properties of lines and circles and how they interact with each other. 
Um, and so um, we say compass and straight edge, but really the mathematical world is thinking about these more theoretically in terms of um, theoretical lines and theoretical circles and theoretical points. Why was the problem of doubling the cube important to the Greeks? The problem of doubling the cube, as I said, it's the, the weirdest sounding of these. Um, it has an old history. Um, uh, you know, it's hard to know much with any certainty from the Greek period. Um, there are uh, there are a couple old stories that have uh, carried down about the origin of this problem. Um, some people call it the, De- the Delian problem. And so one of the stories was that um, that Athens was uh, suffering from a plague and uh, the community sent a delegation to uh, the Oracle of Apollo at Delos. Um, and they wanted to know what they should do to help um, make this plague go away. And they were told that they should double the cube-shaped altar uh, of Apollo. Uh, and so that was sort of this idea of how do we actually carry this out. Um, a similar tale uh, has to do with the semi-mythical king Minos. Um, and he had a, a cube-shaped tomb built for his son, and he wanted that doubled in size. Um, and uh, there was this idea of, well, just double the, the side length of each. But if you double the side length of each, then that increases the, the volume by eight, not by two. Um, and so uh, there are stories of uh, Plato using this as, a, uh, as incentive to think about theoretical uh, mathem- mathematics and um, the importance of being able to uh, understand these geometrical uh, problems. Um, I should say that um, each of these problems, each of these four problems has a unique number associated to it. And in the uh, years that followed, you would really focus on these particular numbers. So uh, let's say that your cube started off having length one and you wanted a cube that has double the volume. That would mean that your new cube should have side length, the cube root of two. And so... um, uh, so as these problems progressed in history, there was this d- realization that if you start off with a line segment of length one, let's say, can you construct a line segment of length cube root of two? Um, and so this cube root of two really is the embodiment of, of this particular problem of antiquity. What are quadrature problems? Quadrature problems were um, sort of the Greek version of finding the area of a shape, um, you know, what today's calculus students would think of as integrating. Um, and so at that time, uh, again, we're working with a compass and straight edge. And so you'd get some shape, um, let's imagine just a polygon of some sort. Um, then if you could use your compass and straight edge to construct a square that has the same area of the polygon, um, it's, you would say you have squared the polygon. That is a quadrature p- problem. And, um, Euclid uh, was able to show how to square any polygon. So this is any shape that has straight edges. Uh, But when things started getting curved, that's when things got a little bit more difficult. Um, So one famous example from uh, the Greek era was was accomplished by the great Archimedes. So Archimedes... uh, took a parabola, and you can imagine slicing a parabola with a straight line at at some angle. So that gives you this little wedge of a parabola. And Archimedes uh, wrote about how exactly you would square that curved shape region. Um, And that 
led into the, the most natural question, which is, can you square a circle? You know, can you construct a square that has the same area as the circle? And so just like the doubling the cube problem has a number associated with it, um, so did the squaring of the circle. So if your circle start off, let's say, with a radius equal to 1, then uh, it would have area pi. And so uh, your square would have to have area pi. Um, and so this is, um, this is the introduction of this most fascinating number in the history of math, pi, into this story. Um, and so throughout my book, pi and the history of pi is, is a thread that, um, that winds through this, this story. And the taming of pi is, it turns out to be a very difficult problem. Um, you mentioned Archimedes. What did Archimedes prove about the number pi? Archimedes, so uh, I didn't know a whole lot about Archimedes before I started this research project. And uh, the more I learned about Archimedes, the more uh, fascinated I became with him and his contributions to mathematics. Um, uh, in particular, he uh, spent much of his career, uh, I personally think, trying to square the circle. He was, um, uh, he was trying to understand uh, circles and spheres and cylinders uh, and other shapes. And really, uh, many of his uh, research uh, work was done trying to, to um, understand these. So, for example, um, in Euclid's Elements, we knew uh, that uh, essentially, I mean, t in today's language, that pi was the area constant for a circle, um, sort of this uh, area equals pi r squared, again, using 2019 language. Um, we did not know at the time of Euclid uh, that the circumference divided by the diameter was also pi. Um, this was not anywhere in Euclid's elements. Uh, and we had to wait for Archimedes to really make that connection between the area constant for the circle and the circumference constant for the circle. Um, he went even farther and uh, recognized that um, that these were also related to the sphere, both the volume of a sphere and the surface area of the sphere. Um, and he was so proud of this uh, this discovery that you know again what today we would call pi is connected to the area of the circle, the circumference of the circle, the surface area of the sphere, and the volume of the sphere. Um, that he wanted this um, to be memorialized on his his tombstone. Um, and in fact, I, I believe that we should call pi Archimedes number um, for that for that very reason. And there were other things that he did um, that also contributed to our understanding of these compass and straight edge problems and um, and pi in particular. Um, what are some mechanical devices that have been used to solve some of these problems? Are they of practical value? Uh, that is a good question. So. Um, you know, by the end of the Greek period, um, people had, I'd say the, the scholarly community believed that these were impossible problems, um, maybe didn't have a proof, but had realized that the best minds uh, were unable to solve them. Um, and so what happened for the centuries afterward were people said, okay, well, what if we abandon the strict requirement of compass and straight edge? And what if we throw in some new uh, tools, so um, some uh, some different drawing tools uh, and other things like that. Then can we solve these problems? Um, so there are all sorts of uh, fascinating drawing devices. Uh, there's one called the tomahawk, 
Um, there's one that Eratosthenes made called the Mesolabe. Um, there are compasses that draw um, all sorts of bizarre curves. Um, there's the Carpenter's Square, which uh, you would buy at the hardware store, a sort of right-angled um, tool. And each of these will allow you to do things that are more that uh, allow you to do more than what you could with a compass and straight edge. Um, so one famous example, which maybe I'll talk about briefly, is um, the marked straight edge. So the, the way this problem is posed, um, originally the compass is blank. There's no markings on it at all. In particular, it's not a ruler where you can measure lengths. Um, uh, but Archimedes realized that if he could measure exactly one distance with a straight edge, so you could think of it as a mark on the straight edge and the end and the end of the straight edge, or maybe two even you know two marks on the side of the straight edge um, that he could trisect an angle. Um, and so he gives this um, you know really elementary way of trisecting an arbitrary angle using a marked straight edge. Um, and this became known as an, a nuisance construction, and and it lived on for many years. Um, uh, a bunch of famous mathematicians dabbled with nuisance constructions over over the years. Um, one fascinating example um, that I learned about was uh, Crockett Johnson, who your listeners might recognize as the author of the children's book Harold and the Purple Crayon, uh, which my kids owned and enjoyed. And he had a um, interest in mathematics. Uh, and he, in addition to his children's book writing, he painted some uh, some mathematical artwork, some of which is in the Smithsonian today. Um, and he found a really ingenious method of constructing the regular seven-sided polygon, the heptagon, uh, using a marked straight edge. Um, and so this was a problem that is impossible with an ordinary compass and straight edge. Uh, but if you have a marked straight edge, uh, you can construct a heptagon, and Crockett Johnson uh, gave a, a really nice method for doing so. You know, earlier you mentioned a parabola. What are some of the other curves besides the straight line and the circle that interested Greek mathematicians? Um, the history of curves and geometry um, was something that I found extremely fascinating. As I said, sort of the most elementary curves are lines and circles, um, and um, there are a host, a long list of other uh, curves that you could study. So the conic sections are a famous example. Um, so these are, in addition to the circle, um, the ellipse, the parabola, and the hyperbola. And the Greek mathematicians knew about these. Um, and if they were unable to solve something with lines and circles, they were willing to use uh, conic sections only as a, as a second option. Um, then there were a host of other problems that were not as nice as uh, even the conic sections. So these had names like the quadratrix, um, the conchoid. Um, there's a variety of different kinds of spirals, and Archimedes studied one of these spirals. Um, and uh, it was interesting learning about the history of these curves uh, from the Greek period all the way up until Descartes and beyond. Um, mathematicians were extremely hesitant to introduce new curves into geometry. Um, lines and circles were best. Uh, if you needed them, conic sections were okay. Uh, and then anything more complicated than a conic section, they really uh, wrinkled their nose at. Um, Descartes, who we may talk about later, um, he uh, was a little more generous, and he introduced what we today might call algebraic curves, 
But even Descartes was um, uh, did not like curves like the quadratrix, these um, curves that people call mechanical curves. Um, so today our students uh, don't think about this at all. Uh, we graph all sorts of curves, but for many, many years, for centuries, um, there was this real hierarchy in what curves were and were not allowed um, in, in mathematics and in geometry in particular. And some of these, uh, the, the, the way this connects to the, my story is that some of these allowed you to trisect the angle or to double the cube or to square the circle and so forth. What was the advantage of algebra vis-a-vis -vis geometry? The problems that uh, these Greeks were trying to solve uh, were geometry problems, as geometric as they come. Um, and mathematicians were unable to solve them. And it turned out that the proofs that they were impossible to solve uh, were not geometry proofs. Um, they were proofs using algebra. Um, and so... Uh, Algebra as a mathematical discipline is much, much younger than geometry. Um, and for many years, geometry was the way that people did mathematics and uh, people were, mathematicians were extremely reluctant to, um, to stray from that ideal. Um, there are glimpses, many glimpses of algebra um, throughout history, um, going back to the Egyptians, to Mesopotamia, to Greece, India, the Islamic Empire, um, uh, etc. Um, there were glimpses of algebra, but what we would today recognize as algebra um, uh, had to wait until um, the 16th and 16th century, let's say. Um, and when mathematicians started um, looking at geometry from an algebraic point of view, there was a lot of resistance to it, a lot of pushback. There's a, a famous... Um, disagreement between the philosopher Thomas Hobbes and the mathematician John Wallace uh, over algebra. Um, and uh, there were a lot of hard feelings. And I would say the old guys did not like these, this newfangled algebra. Um, and the young guys wanted to use this new tool to solve mathematical problems. Um, in a way, it reminds me of um, my own experience uh, witnessing the introduction of computers and calculators into mathematics. Um, the older mathematicians were really reluctant to stray from traditional pencil and paper mathematics um, and felt like computers and calculators sh should not be involved in theoretical mathematics. Uh, but then the older generation retired and the younger generation uh, you know, started using these devices. And today it's hard to imagine uh, even the most theoretical of math problems, not being able to uh, use the power of computers. And in a lot of ways, the algebra versus geometry debate was very similar. Uh, that's a very good point. You mentioned Descartes earlier. We think of him as a philosopher and the developer of analytic geometry, but he also made some major contributions to geometry. Perhaps you could describe some of them. Uh, yes, sure. Um, so Descartes is a fascinating uh, individual. As you said, he is a philosopher. Um, and uh, when people think of his mathematical contributions, they think probably of the X and Y coordinates and the coordinate plane and so forth. Um, he, however, is one of the heroes of this particular story. Um, he was a geometer and he wrote a book called La Geometrie. Um, and he was uh, one of the first people to realize that um, that you could use algebra to help solve geometry problems. Um, so he was not 
the first to think of this. Um, there was a mathematician named Viet who came a little before him who had started to do this. Um, however, Viet had this um, uh, this idea, which was sort of is expected, is that if you multiply a length times a length, you would get an area. And if you multiply a length times an area, you would get a volume. And so uh, representing geometric objects using algebra, Viet would not have, for example, added x plus x squared. x would be a length and x squared would be an area. Um, this is what he called the homogeneity assumption. Um, Descartes came along and realized that uh, he could do away with this homogeneity problem. He found a way to, um, you know, we, one may, way you might think about this is how to do arithmetic with line segments so that you could add two line segments and get a line segment or multiply two line segments and get a line segment um, and so forth. Um, and so uh, as I mentioned before, each of these problems has a number associated with it. Um, and so, again, putting our modern spin on what Descartes did, he came up with this idea of constructible numbers. So if you start off with a line segment of length 1, can you construct a line segment of length whatever, A? Um, and essentially what Descartes showed is that you could do that if and only if A could be written as a number using the integers and addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, and square roots. So uh, you could construct a line segment of length the square root of 2, and you could uh, construct a line segment of length 1 plus the square root of 5 all over 2. Um, but if you cannot write a number in that fashion, then it is impossible to construct that line segment. And so it seems like we might be right at the end of our story. So if, if we think about that doubling the cube example, um, that one, the special number was the cube root of two. And so if it's impossible to write the cube root of two using square roots, then it's impossible to solve that problem. Um, so it seems like we're close, but we still need to get to that point where we can say this is impossible. Um, I should also add that um, Descartes, uh, as I mentioned before, he introduced some new curves into geometry. Um, so these are things like uh, the parabola and higher degree uh, curves or the algebraic curves. And so he expanded what geometers were allowed to look at in this, in this field. Um, you mentioned that uh, one of the problems that uh, you're investigating in your book are the construction of regular polygons. Which polygons were the ancient Greeks able to construct using the rules set up by Euclid? So, as I mentioned, we could uh, construct an equilateral triangle, um, they could construct a square, they could construct a regular pentagon, um, and then they realized that um, if you construct any regular polygon, um, there's a relatively easy way to double the number of sides. So you could construct a regular six-sided polygon, you could construct a regular eight-sided polygon, ten-sided polygon, and so forth. Um, three and five are prime numbers, and so it turns out that you can be a little bit clever and you can construct a regular three times five or 15-sided polygon, and you could double the number of sides of, of that polygon. Um, so there were a whole bunch that they were able to construct, um, but that left some gaps. So as I mentioned before, the, the seven-sided polygon, uh, which is the heptagon, the nonagon, the regular nine-sided polygon were unknown, um, and so forth. Um, in this particular case, as I said, each, um, 
each of these problems has a number associated with it, it turns out you are able to construct a regular n-sided polygon if you can construct a line segment of length cosine of 360 divided by n. Um, so it turns out that some of these the Greeks were able to do, and then they had a whole bunch of question marks. Uh, seven and nine were the were the smallest polygons that they were um, that they did not know how to construct. Um, are the ones that the Greeks were able to construct the only constructible regular polygons? Uh, no. So this is a fascinating uh, uh, episode in the history of math. So um, one might think that the answer is that the Greeks found them all and the rest of them were impossible. Uh, but it turns out that's not the case. Um, in 1796, uh, when Gauss, one of the, the great mathematicians, uh, when he was a teenager, um, he realized that it was possible to construct the regular 17-sided polygon. So this was one that the Greeks did not know how to construct, uh, but that was possible. Um, and so uh, Gauss often uh, cited this as one of the uh, things that led him into a career in mathematics. Uh, just like Archimedes wanted his uh, mathematical accomplishments on his tombstone, uh, Gauss also wanted a 17-sided polygon on his tombstone. Um, it turns out, though, that Gauss did a lot more than just show that the 17-sided polygon was constructible. Um, and the twists and turns and, uh, of his work uh, lead through algebra and complex numbers uh, and even number theory. So just to give you a little glimpse of that, um, we all know about prime numbers, so 3, 5, 7, 11, and so forth. Um, mathematicians often looked for prime generating functions, functions that would generate prime numbers. And Pierre de Fermat found what he thought was a prime generating function. He thought that 2 to the power 2 to the power n, all plus 1, would generate prime numbers. So 3 is 2 to the 2 to the 0 plus 1. 5 is 2 to the 2 to the 1st plus 1. 17 is 2 to the 2 to the 2nd plus 1, and so forth. 257 is the next one. Um, 65,537 is the next one. Uh, and he thought that these were going to generate all the prime numbers. It turns out Fermat was wrong. It turns out Euler was able to factor the very next one. Um, but it gave um, some prime numbers. Um, and uh, in a fascinating twist, it turns out that the regular polygons that had those number of sides, these Fermat primes, those are the ones that are constructible. So 3, 5, 17, 257, 65,537. Um, and Gauss showed that all of those were constructible. Um, he didn't make the next step, though, that all the other ones are not constructible. Um, but in typical Gauss fashion, uh, he wrote that the other ones aren't, but I'm not going to prove it. So basically, don't waste your time trying to prove this, but they aren't impossible. So officially, it was still an open problem, even though the great Gauss said that the rest of them were impossible. You know, uh, there's a name in your book, Pierre Vonsel. I'm, I hope that's how to pronounce it. It's a name unfamiliar to many mathematicians. Who was he and what were his contributions? Uh, yeah, so Pierre Vancel, um is, even to this day, uh, not as well-known as he should be. Um, I recently looked at his Wikipedia page, and it's like less than one screen's length. Um, but it turns out he was, in a way, one of the main heroes of this story. Uh, he proved that three of these four problems were impossible. Um, and so 
uh, he was sort of a troubled soul. He lived in uh, France. Uh, he, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot written about him, but what I've read is that he led this hard driving life. Uh, he worked many hours. He was, uh, busy teaching and being an administrator and, uh, doing research. Uh, there's a quote that he used too much coffee and opium, uh, and he died when he was only 33 years old. Um, but when he, um, when he, before he passed away, he wrote a short seven-page article that's just amazing, seven pages. Uh, and in this uh, article, he proved that it is impossible to trisect every angle. It's impossible to double the cube. And he finished Gauss's uh, work to show that um, all of the other regular polygons are not constructible. Um, one of my mathematician friends who knew about this short article pointed out that there are uh, there's one amazing page of mathematics in there uh, that contains sort of the, the final proof of all three of these problems. Um, and so I jokingly said that uh, Einstein and Newton have their miraculous year. Uh, and so we should probably call this the miraculous page. Um, and so just to put this in context, um, this was 1837. So this is uh, exactly 200 years after Descartes wrote his geometry. Um, he published this a uh, very important article, and then there was just sort of a deafening silence. For some reason, people did not take notice of this article, and uh, for about 100 years afterward, um, this uh, amazing article lived in obscurity. Um, there's this famous uh, letter exchange between uh, the famous mathematicians William Rowan Hamilton and De Morgan uh, in uh, the 1850s, where they go back and forth and said, do we know that it's impossible to trisect an angle? I don't know. I think we do, don't we? Did Gauss prove it? No, I don't think he did, and so forth. Uh, and so uh, Pierre Wansel lived in obscurity um, until this famous math historian named Florian Cajori in 1837. So that was literally 100 years after uh, Wansel proved his art. Uh, proved his theorems that Florian Cajorli said, hey, everyone, this is the mathematician who proved these impossibility problems and sort of set the record straight. So um, it's fascinating. Well, one of my favorite people in mathematical history is Galois. And Galois had a similar story uh, associated with him, except it only took about 10 years. Uh, for <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, you mentioned that Pierre von Sell, uh, now I know how to pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> Pierre von Sell proved three of the four problems were impossible. He did not prove that it is impossible to square the circle. Who did that and how? Uh, yes. So as I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, this one was both the most famous of the problems and uh, the trickiest problem. Um, and so uh, as I mentioned previously, the problem of squaring the circle really comes down to understanding the number pi. Um, and so, uh, you know, for half a decade after Pierre Rensel did his work, uh, mathematicians were still struggling with this problem of squaring the circle. Um, there's this amazing uh, excerpt uh, about Lincoln where his law partner comes in. Uh, so Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, was uh, fascinated with Euclid's elements and with geometry, and his law partner came in, and Lincoln had paper strewn across his desk, and he was trying to solve the problem of squaring the circle. And so I will not label Euclid as a circle squarer because 
at this time, it was still an unknown problem whether squaring the circle was was possible or impossible. Um, so I should mention one little fact about what Pierre Wansell did. So we are by this point, we are well into algebra. So algebra that today's algebraists would recognize. Um, and Pierre Wansell's uh, main theorem had to do with um, these numbers being roots of polynomials. So polynomials are things like 5x squared plus 2x plus 3, things like that. Um, and so if you were going to be a constructible number, you had to be a root of a polynomial like that with certain special properties. Um, and it turns out that there are numbers that are called transcendental numbers. So these are numbers that are not the root of any polynomial. And if you're not the root of any polynomial, then you are definitely not the root of uh, one of these special polynomials that Pierre Wansell had identified. Um, and so it turned out that the key to solving this last problem was to show that pi is a transcendental number. Uh, and this was a really tricky problem. Um, it turns out there are many, many transcendental numbers, but if you give me a number, it's hard for me to say yes or no, whether it's transcendental. Um, so this mathematician named Charles Hermite uh, in 1873 showed that the number E was a transcendental number. And Hermite was a very uh, famous and accomplished mathematician. And some people thought he would take the next step and show that pi is a transcendental number. Um, it turns out he did not do it. Uh, it was someone who used the ideas of Hermite um, to solve this. And this was a mathematician named Ferdinand von Lindemann in 1882. So he showed that pi is a transcendental number, uh, and that showed that it is impossible to square the circle. Um, one other interesting note about this is that uh, if you ask mathematicians what they think the most beautiful expression is in mathematics, uh, many people will uh, refer to Euler's identity, e to the pi i equals negative one. And in a beautiful uh, final uh, punctuation mark on this, the history of this beautiful problem is that Euler's identity is sort of the key ingredient that, that Ferdinand von Lindemann needed to prove that um, that pi is transcendental and that it's impossible to square the circle. You know, I think, uh, and I think some other mathematicians think that Euler's identity is actually the second most beautiful uh, uh, expression in mathematics. You have e to the i pi equals minus one. The most beautiful one that I feel is e to the i pi plus one equals zero, because that has the five most important constants in mathematics, zero, the additive identity, one, the multiplicative identity, e, the basis of uh, all the growth uh, results, i, the square root of minus one, and the number that that so concerns uh, the Greeks and is so plays such an important role in your book, Pi. They're all on, all appearing on our giant stage. It's like having the best rock groups in history. For <laughs> exactly. Experiments. It's just it, amazing, amazing. You know, you, know, you it, look at that and it's just spectacular. And I also like the way you ended the book with a top 10 list of transcendental numbers because I seem to recall that uh, that um, there are lots of oddities about showing things about transcendental numbers. I think it's known that of the two numbers, pi to the e and e to the pi, one is known to be transcendental, and I think the status of the other is unknown at the moment. Um, but it, I know that it is very difficult to show that uh, certain numbers are transcendental. Um, are there any interesting numbers whose status is currently unknown? 
Uh, sure. Yes. So uh, it turns out that this became an active area of, of research in the uh, 20th century. Um, fields medals were given trying to understand transcendental numbers and so forth. And some numbers that are surely transcendental are s- still unknown. So, uh, so some examples are pi to the pi and e to the e. Uh, as you said, e to the pi is known to be transcendental, but pi to the e, we don't know. Uh, and then a, a fun example here is that uh, uh, pi plus e and pi minus e, we know that uh, one or the other, or perhaps both of them are transcendental, but we don't know which one. Uh, oh, I sur- didn't know that. That's funny. Sh- surely they both are, but, uh, but this is something we don't know how to prove. Um, so it is, uh, it is maddening or exciting, depending on how you look at it, that, uh, that they are the transcendental, transcendental numbers are in some sense everywhere, but it's hard to, uh, point your finger at anyone, uh, and say yes or no, whether it's transcendental or not. Yeah, well, if you study uh, other branches of mathematics, you discover that if you pick a number at random from the real line, the probability that it's transcendental is one. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. um, One of the things that uh, uh, we use to conclude interviews here is we'd like to know how listeners can get in touch with you, because I'm sure some of them will want to. And I hope they're not the mathematical cranks. for you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They can write to you if they they want to. (laughs) That was one of my first jobs when I got got my first position at uh, UCLA. Um, For one year, I handled all the circle squaring requests to the Pacific (laughs) Journal of Mathematics. (laughs) Anyway, how can uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, Uh, well, I'm I'm very active on Twitter. I love Twitter, and I'm div by zero d i v b y z e r o. So that's a great way to get in touch with me. I also have a blog, which is almost the same. It's divizbyzero.com. Uh, I teach, uh, I'm a professor of mathematics at Dickinson College, so people can get in touch with me uh, through the, the college and the college's website as well. Um, also, it took you something like seven or eight years to complete your quest as far as uh, the tales of impossibility are concerned. Do you have any projects on which you're currently working that might interest our listeners? Um, that is a good question. I'm, I'm almost uh, in between projects right now, which is very exciting. Uh, one reason this book took me so long is that uh, I was an editor of a math publication called Math Horizons uh, for six years. Uh, and so that took a lot of my time. And my term as editor is also coming to an end. Um, I am missing working with uh, my longtime research collaborator. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm particularly interested in uh, mathematical crafts, so making things uh, that are mathematical, making them out of paper, 3D printing things, uh, things like that. And so uh, I've been writing up some of those ideas. Uh, I also uh, really continue to be fascinated with the history of math. Uh, I don't have a project lined up at the moment, but I'm thinking about uh, what comes next in, in that uh, particular area. Dave, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much.